And now meet mighty Elton John. Elton, we were a little surprised to see that although your own last record wasn't a hit, a New Zealand group had a local success with it. Now, how did they get hold of the number? I have no idea. It's, it's quite amazing, really, because we just sort of picked up uh, a trade paper and there it was in the uh, New Zealand charts. And we couldn't believe how, we, how it got there or how they even got hold of it. You know, it's quite, quite amazing. I'm very glad they did get hold <laughs> of, of it, mind you. When the cold wind's screaming and the evening is still Lady Samantha glides over the hill In a long satin dress that she wears every day Her home is the hillside, her bed is the grave Lady Samantha flies like a tiger over the hill with no one beside her Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. Last time I looked at Elton's covers of hit songs from the late 60s and 1970. And so here's the opposite, an episode about Elton's contemporaries covering his songs over the same era. I've made up a document to guide the listener and it's linked in the description. I'm not taking things chronologically here, so I thought that it would get confusing if I didn't provide some sort of a reference. There, at the beginning of the episode, was Elton being interviewed by BBC Radio 1 DJ Brian Matthew and talking about unexpectedly finding himself at number three in the New Zealand pop charts. That record in question is the one I'm talking over by a band called Shane, led by an English expat called Shane Hales. This was a follow-up to his number one hit, St Paul, which was all about the Paul is Dead conspiracy. I must thank my correspondent John McEwen, who's pointed me towards some superb material for this programme. Much of that material, like the interview at the start, comes from BBC Top of the Pops transcription discs. These records were like a regular best-of of interviews and sessions from Radio 1 programmes, and they were sent out and licensed out to foreign broadcasters. They're rather expensive if you want to pick them up these days. Here's the rest of that wonderful interview. Have there been any more instances of people covering your numbers without your knowledge? Uh, yes, it happened to Three Dog Night in the States. They did Lady Samantha on their LP, and they rang us up you know, to tell us that they were doing it, which I couldn't believe. And then Edwin Hawkins rang up to say that they're covering Border Song in America. Which is your um, own. Yeah, and usually the, the, the way of going about placing songs is you, you send some songs to somebody, but it's yeah. nice when they ring up and say, oh, we're doing that anyway. You know. Even nicer when the, the royalty yeah. checks roll in. Okay, yes. but you, <laughs> you are still doing things, uh, personal appearances and records yourself. What, um, what's coming up soon? Well, I hope to have a tour in Europe with Sergio Mendes, which is a, a sort of strange bill to put on, but uh, in Europe, I think they're a bit more broad-minded. They, you can put sort of the Rolling Stones with, on with Tom Jones, and it, they wouldn't care less, I don't think. So mm-hmm. I'm doing it for the experience, really. You know? Right. And recording-wise, anything new? Um, planned? There's an album coming out in two weeks called Elton John, and a double album coming out in August, and another album out of, coming out in January after that. Hey, are they? All, yeah. th- those are all planned. Are any of them yeah, recorded? Yeah, they're all planned. Yeah. There's uh, the half the double albums recorded. Yes. 
Is that, is that again just a three-piece of your augmented? No. Um, the one that's coming out in two weeks' time is mostly orchestral stuff um, with an orchestra, a freaky orchestra, I may point out. And uh, the other double album will be mostly group stuff and folk stuff. Yeah. Edwin Hawkins song that Elton was talking about. It came out as an A-side on Buddha in June 1970, around about the same time as Elton's version was being re-released on Uni. Elton was evidently already aware of its existence in March when this interview happened. It wasn't credited to the Edwin Hawkins singers, but to Dorothy Morrison, who'd been the primary voice on the Edwin Hawkins song Oh Happy Day, a massive hit all over the world and it turned that song into a gospel standard. It must have been a huge thrill for Elton to have gospel musicians covering his music. Later on, in October 1970, after Elton's massively successful appearance at the Troubadour, Aretha Franklin released her own cover of the song on Atlantic. It was a release that brought her run of gold singles to an end. I can't mention Aretha without saying what a massive contribution she made to this planet which is a lot worse off without her. Okay, so jumping back to New Zealand in December 1969, the song that was released on HMV out there directly before the Lady Samantha that we just heard was a cover of Elton and Bernie's When the First Tear Shows by the band Tom Thumb, a psych band who were pushed by their producer into more M.O.R. territory in a bid to find success. Hold my hand, girl, tighter, much, much tighter. Cause what I got to say, I only hope and pray, comes out as well as I rehearsed it yesterday. Elton never released this tune, but there is a full production demo that circulates and it's a lot livelier than this. 
thanks to some great guitar work from Caleb. In November 1968, just over a year before this release, Brian Keith had brought out his cover on Page One Records. Brian was the lead singer with Plastic Penny, and Page One were in the same building as DJM, so there's no mystery as to how he came to this song. But what about these New Zealand covers from 1969? Peter Dawkins, the house producer at HMV New Zealand, is the common factor here. He produced both of them. Peter Dawkins was an Australian-born musician who ended up producing the likes of Air Supply, among many other musicians that aren't well known outside of New Zealand and Australia. Crucially though, he drummed with the first visiting Kiwi rock band to get any attention on the London scene, Me and the Others. They arrived in England in June 1966, failed an audition with Chris Blackwell at Ireland before Viv Prince, the drummer with the Pretty Things, helped get them a regular gig at the Knuckles Club in Soho. By the beginning of 67, Dawkins and the bassist who'd come over with him, Gary Thane, moved on to the band The New Nadir, taking on regular gigs at the likes of the Marquee, the Bag of Nails and the Scotch of St James alongside the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart. Everything I've mentioned so far constitutes an Elton John connection. They also jammed a few times with Jimi Hendrix. At some point, the band fell apart with Thane staying on to join David Byron's Uriah Heep and Dawkins eventually heading to New Zealand. Dawkins doesn't appear to have forgotten about the bespectacled keyboard player from Bluesology, who incidentally I can't actually prove he met or even played on the same bill as, but anyway, my sense is that he did and that somehow he stayed abreast of the records that were being released with an Elton John songwriting credit. Despite Elton saying that he was baffled by his number three hit in New Zealand, it's entirely possible that Elton and Dawkins were corresponding. Elton wasn't shy about sending out letters and records to people who he felt might want to cover his music. Later on, I'll read out the letter that he wrote to Danny Hutton from Three Dog Night the following year. One way or another... Dawkins is on record as having picked out the material for Shane and for Tom Thumb. Dawkins made use of Elton's songs even before these two December 1969 releases. When he arrived in New Zealand, Dawkins learnt his trade alongside his predecessor at HMV, Howard Gable. And one of the projects they worked on was the band The Quincy Conserve, the HMV house band, who were described as Wellington's first supergroup. Their single, I'm So Proud, from June 1968, had as its B-side the Elton John Bernie Taupin composition, I've Been Loving You, Baby. Those New Zealand ooh vowels make me smile. Now this is early 
It was only the third cover of any Elton John song, if you count the first as the long John Baldry recording of Hey Lord, You Made the Night Too Long from November 1967. Next was Edwin B's cover of I've Been Loving You, which I featured in episode 13. That came out in May 68. And then on the other side of the planet, the Quincy Conserve released their take on the song just a few weeks later. Someone in New Zealand was on the ball, and I'm pretty sure it was Peter Dawkins. Unfortunately, I'm too late to ask him. He died in 2014. There's one very unexpected thing in this arrangement. In April 1969, another Quincy Conserve single was released, this time with Here's to the Next Time on the B-side. I'm not going to play that one, but there are links to listen to almost all of these covers in the accompanying document. Skipping forward, but staying in New Zealand, now on the Zodiac label, in what was probably February or March 1970, a band called The Tongues released an album that featured their cover of Take Me to the Pilot before the Elton John album came out. bit unexpected that. The intro is lifted straight from the Orange Bicycle cover of the tune, which had been released in January 1970, more of that in a minute, but then they've gone in and converted the verse into a kind of slow waltz. It's an interesting view on the song, I'm not sure how successful it is. This was later released as a single in July of that year, but it wouldn't be long until they would disband. So far, so New Zealand, and I haven't even mentioned Hayden Wood, he featured in the last episode anyway. There's a great deal of music that qualifies as an early cover, and so I've had to make some pretty arbitrary decisions about what to consider and what not to consider. I've excluded songs that weren't sung in English, 
and I've also set a cutoff point for songs that were recorded before Elton started making big waves at the Troubadour. But that means I'm focusing on covers that come to us via people that knew and worked with Elton in that era, and I'm trying to draw out those connections. Even within this limited domain, there are plenty of recordings and stories that I'll be passing on for now. I mentioned Orange Bicycle. Now, a group that hasn't yet had a hit, despite a succession of marvellous records. They're called Orange Bicycle, and here's the leader, Rob Storm. Rob, how does this lack of chart recognition make you feel? Um, the one word answer is lousy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I don't know, we keep going because we enjoy playing and singing. You know, I just enjoy the music, and really there's nothing else I can do. Does that go for everybody? I think so. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any qualified accountants here or anything like that, no, no, no. so I think really music is the only thing we can make a living at, you know? Meanwhile, you're still uh, pushing the single, are you? Yes, that this one, which is doing well in the, on the continent, but over here, uh, or in England, shall I say, not, not, not very mm. much, you know? Well, never mind. We've got a lot of listeners overseas who are probably buying it. Uh, mm. And it's called? Uh, take Me to the Pilot. And let's hear it. <laughs> isn't the single version, which is available on YouTube, but a session that was recorded for the BBC in the first months of 1970. I love the prominence of the bass here, it's a really garagey sound. Orange Bicycle had a long history. They started out as Rob Storm and the Whispers in 1959, at the end of the Skiffle era at the Two Eyes Coffee Bar in Soho alongside the likes of Tommy Steele. Cliff Richard and Vince Taylor, who was notable for many things, including being one of Bowie's main prototypes for his Ziggy Stardust character. They played more than 100 sessions for the BBC, and they were also the first band to play behind the Iron Curtain, touring Poland with Helen Shapiro. It's not clear when or whether they played alongside Bluesology, but there's no reason to think that they wouldn't have. The band teamed up with Will Malone, who went on to arrange both Bittersweet Symphony and Unfinished Sympathy to become Orange Bicycle in or around the Summer of Love. And by the time their album came out in September 1970, they were extremely late onto the bandwagon. Their album also included covers of Lady Samantha and Country Comforts. Speaking of Country Comforts. Prepares his service for next week. 
a bit like this was meant for Rod's vocal. It's been said that Bernie and Elton took exception to the liberties that he took with the lyrics. I quite like the line, it's that old-fashioned feeling in my bones for what it's worth. This came out in June 1970 on Rod's album Gasoline Alley, so more than six months before Tumbleweed, and Rod also released it as a single in the USA the following year. Rod got Ronnie Wood in on guitar, Ronnie Lane on bass, Mickey Waller from the Steam Packet and the Jeff Beck group on drums. And also sneaking in on vocals at the end of the tune was Mickey's friend Harry Reynolds, also known as Jack. Just the sweetest sound my ears have ever known Just an old-fashioned feeling in my bones Country comforts and the road that's Going back a bit to the second half of 1969, Harry and Mickey, along with Ronnie Wood, came across an American guitarist called Lee Stevens, who'd previously been in the US-based psychedelic outfit Blue Cheer. In a 2011 interview with It's Psychedelic Baby, Lee said, I was living in London and Mickey Waller just appeared having been part of the Jeff Beck group. He introduced me to Ronnie Wood and we started to rehearse at the Stones studio in Bermondsey. Woody ended up going with the faces and Pete and I ended up meeting Harry Reynolds, who had a friend with a lot of good songs yet to be recorded. Turns out his friend was Elton John and we took around four or five songs of his and did them on the Silver Meter album. They picked up Pete Sears, a bassist who'd worked with Pete York from the Spencer Davis group, recorded their album at Trident, played one gig in the UK and then went off to LA, touring out there with Jim Capaldi and Steve Winwood's Traffic. The album was released in November 1969, more than a year before Tumbleweed. The songs that they took of Elton's were Country Comforts, 60 Years On, and The Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, which they went on to release as an A-side. Mm-hmm. 
comes across as rather tepid and chugging, especially in comparison to Elton's definitive version, which manages to weave the piano and guitar together in a highly innovative and exciting way. Silver Meter were probably working from Elton and Hookfoot's early attempt at the song, which came out on the Tumbleweed Connection Deluxe Edition. According to the book Had Me A Real Good Time, a biography of the faces by Andy Neal, it was Harry that suggested country comfort to Rod. It took Harry's intervention, it seems, to get Rod to take an interest in Elton's songwriting. Elton and Rod certainly knew each other in the 60s. Their first meeting is documented in the Philip Norman book. Elton was 18 and he went down to the local conservative club to see Steen Packet, Long John Baldry's group, who also had Julie Driscoll and Rod Stewart singing. There is a very good chance then that this was the Steen Packet gig in Watford on Saturday the 4th of September 1965. Elton says that he turned up at the pub afterwards, approached Rod and said, Excuse me, Mr Stewart, can I have your autograph? The tone of the relationship seems to have been set at that point. Of course, Elton and Rod both had Baldry in common, but Rod might not have seen much of Elton playing. And socially, Elton was shy. Linda Woodrow, Elton's bride-to-be at the time, says as much. Interviewed in the Keith Haywood book, she recalls meeting Rod at a club in Bond Street with other friends. This would have been sometime in early 1968. I can't imagine Elton having much of an impact on Rod at the time, and Elton can't have felt that he had a lot to shout about in relation to his life, his music, or his relationships. Harry and Elton are down as being friends though, and Harry was undoubtedly interested in Elton's music. Trying to work out how they came to know each other is difficult. In the first half of the 60s, Harry played with Lord Such, and then later on with uh, the Soul Savages, both of these alongside Paul Nicholas, who would later on become Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ Superstar. The Soul Savages were on the Who's Package Tour in April 1966 alongside the Spencer Davis group. And again, although I can't prove it, they surely must have played alongside Bluesology at some point. They were certainly part of the same scene. For example, backing US acts when they came over on their British tours. There exists a concert recording of Silver Meter at the Fillmore West from the 10th of July 1970 where their set is dominated by these three Elton John songs, played before Elton even set foot on US soil. Here from there is 60 Years On, with Harry singing his own lyrics in a final verse.
I touched on the first half of 1968 being a tough time for Elton. If anything can be said to have turned it around, it was his endorsement by two of the most successful songwriters in Tim Pan Alley, Rogers Cook and Greenaway. This endorsement was more than just warm words. Their publishing company, Cookaway Music, managed to get Dick James to hand over the publishing on a couple of songs, which led to Roger Cook releasing one of them. 50 years ago this week, on the 16th of August, 1968. Turn me loose from your hands Let me fly high to distant lands Over green fields, trees and mountains Flowers and forest fountains Home along the lanes of the skyways For this dark and lonely room Rejects a shadow casting gloom And my eyes are mirrors Of the world outside Thinking of the way That the wind can turn the tide And these shadows change from purple into grey Or just a skyline pigeon Dreaming of the open Waiting for the day That he can spread his wings And fly away again Fly away Skyline pigeon fly Towards the dreams you left So very far behind Fly away Skyline pigeon fly Towards the dreams you left so very far behind. The Rogers first met a very young Reg when he was the office boy at their music publisher, Mills Music. At that time, they didn't even know he was a musician. Greenaway recalls a later meeting in 1968 in the Keith Hayward book. He says, I went into DJM Studios and Reg and Bernie were very down and depressed. Reg said that nothing was ever going to happen, so I asked him to play some of his songs. He played me Teal Be Abbey and Skyline Pigeon. They liked both of the songs, it seems, and they picked up Teal Be Abbey for the Young Brothers, although, as I said in episode three, that was never released, and Skyline Pigeon for Roger Cook himself. It was released on Columbia. It was stocked in Britain, the USA, and Australia, which must have been a huge thrill for Elton. Here is Roger Cook talking about his cover recently on the Strange Brew podcast. I remember Reg, as I knew him as then, he, he played me that song. And I thought it was such a good song. I actually took the song around and tried to, tried to get it recorded by other people. Because of that, it was arranged that um, Roger and I could have half of the publishing of the song just because I worked it. I never heard a verse and it was really taken off for me, you know, and so I decided, well, I think I know how it should go. And I cut it with just a couple of pianos. I liked it, I enjoyed the song, I thought it was a great song. And it was just, it was before they'd had any hits of any kind, Elton and Bernie, so I think they were, they were thrilled at the time to get a cut. 
Released just one week after Cook's Skyline Pigeon was this interpretation by Guy Darrell, this time on Pi Records. superior version in my opinion. Cook's take on Skyline Pigeon has grown on me but in the end it's a bit confusing to have two pianos playing at once. The Guy Darrell version is ornamented but not overly so and the music swells in all the right places. In fact it doesn't sound a million miles away from Elton's second studio recording of the song as orchestrated by Paul Buckmaster. It's straightforward but it works. In the case of this Guy Darrell record, the Elton John connection isn't a particularly direct one. The arrangers were Des Champ and Roger Easterby, and they often worked with Larry Page from Page One. And they also knew Guy Darrell. That's about it. In 1970, Guy had another crack at this song, this time with his band Deep Feeling. Also in 1969, Darrell recorded Turn To Me, which is on YouTube and which I featured in episode three, and Sing Me No Sad Songs, which isn't available anywhere. It was quickly withdrawn and I've not been able to track it down. Another cover that I couldn't get hold of, although this one probably does circulate, is Aisha's Taking the Sun From My Eyes, released as the B-side of a Bacharach and David song on Polydor on the 7th of February 1969. There's not enough time to go into Aisha Bruff's full biography. She released her first single when she was 16 in 1965. She was romantically linked with Steve Widwood and Rod Stewart, and she was a part of the Birmingham-based group The Blues Hounds, who included Dave Pegg prior to him joining Fairport Convention. 
The whole band were apparently closely associated with the Spencer Davis group. I'd love to know a bit more about how Aisha got to know about Elton's music because she played quite an important role. Elton's first ever TV appearance was on a children's music programme called Disco Tech, promoting Lady Samantha on the 19th of March 1969. Aisha actually introduced him. She just started co-hosting the show having appeared as a performer on February the 19th, presumably singing the Bacharach and David song that she'd just released. Maybe the fact that she'd just recorded an Elton John song had something to do with the fact that he ended up being booked on the show. Who knows? I contacted her, but unfortunately she hasn't responded. Anyway, the Blues Hounds were originally founded by a fellow called Roy Everett, but he dropped away from the group at around the time Aisha Bruff and Jimmy Cliff were taken on. Roy Everett himself released a very interesting cover of an Elton John song in May 1969. this 
The drumming in particular is superb and the rest of the recipe, wild guitar, distorted bass, swooping strings, the great vocals, the flutes, it all adds up to something very special. It was arranged by Joe Moretti from Johnny Kidd and the Pirates and it might well be him on guitar. My sense is that the musicians are broadly going to be the same as the outfit that Moretti brought in to record the Don Partridge album in 1968. As far as the link with Elton goes, Roy Everett was managed by Tony Hall, who Steve Brown worked closely with. This is the same route that saw Elton being introduced to Paul Buckmaster, so thanks indeed have to go to Tony. What a tune this is. Surely it could have been an A-side. It came out as the B-side of Everett's single though. That was called Happy Birthday Blues. Staying in May 1969 for the time being, back at Frome Court where Elton and Bernie were staying with Sheila and Durf, there's a phone call and an American voice on the other end of the line. This is reported by Mick Inkpen, Elton's friend from the Bluesology days in the Keith Hayward book. That American voice belonged to Danny Hutton calling to ask Elton's permission to record Lady Samantha on the second Three Dog Night album that was released in June 69. When the cold wind is screaming and the evening is still Lady Samantha glides over the hill In a long satin dress that she wears every day the full story as to how Elton and Danny became acquainted briefly though Danny approached DJM while he was on tour in the UK to ask if they had any songs he could record and Elton was duly sent around to Danny's apartment that he was renting with an acetate of Bad Side of the Moon they got on well and Danny was very impressed with Elton's writing and his voice he wanted to hear more. Elton ended up having to pretend to be the band's roadie because the gigs were sold out and there was no room on the guest list. He got into the marquee and he brought with him a copy of Empty Sky, presumably Lady Samantha as well. On the record, it wasn't sung by Danny. In the end, it was sung by Corey Wells from the band. Elton and Danny remained in touch 
Danny recently made available a letter that Elton sent him on the 27th of November 1969. I'll read some excerpts. When I sent you the last load of dubs, I omitted to send you 60 years on, so I'm enclosing a dub for you. Hope you got the dubs okay and liked them. I'm coming to the States definitely in March. It'll be a promotion trip to tie in with my record company, but I'll be pushing material round to people I'd like to hear them. Last week, your version of Lady Samantha was played twice on the radio. By the way, on the demo of 60 Years On, sounds like a piece of the Planet Suite. I.e., we originally wrote it as a heavy group thing, but now we're doing it on an album with a huge orchestra. I should be recording soon and will be looking forward to it. I wasted seven months getting together a group, but we had business hang-ups and then they were signed up by Chess Records. So now we've had to rethink our musical aims. We're going to concentrate on writing more down-home numbers for other people and I want to get into a position like Nilsson and Laura Nairo who don't necessarily make big singles, but they're big on albums. It's going to be a hard struggle, but I'm determined not to sell out and write crap. I really can't thank you enough for what you've done to help us. Bernie and I still can't believe we've been so lucky. With the money we've got from Lady Sam, we've been able to cancel our royalty advance, so that's great. Well, I'm sorry to have been a drag. It seems I'm forever hyping you. Hope to see you in March, and perhaps you'll write to let me know how things are going. Thanks and peace, Elton. Isn't that wonderful? No further information required. That letter explains clearly where Elton and the team were coming from towards the end of 1969. The money from Lady Samantha had given Elton and Bernie loads of encouragement and loads of breathing space as they went about writing and preparing for the second album. Despite Elton's hype, Danny didn't go for 60 years on in the end, but he did opt for your song. It's a little bit funny, this feeling inside. I, I'm not one of those who can easily hide. I, I don't have much money, but boy, if I did, I'd build a big house. It's not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, and this one's for you. And you can tell everybody this is your song. It may be quite simple, but now that it's gone, I hope you don't mind.
This recording with Danny Hutton on vocals was released in March 1970, a month before the Elton John album came out. I miss the folky details from the Elton John version, but I do like the instrumental section in the middle. They're happy to let the song breathe, skipping out a whole third verse in the process. I don't particularly like the jaunty I hope you don't mind a bit or the high-pitched organ swells, but it's a nice, happy-sounding interpretation, totally inoffensive. I'm going to draw this to a close now. I'm aware that there are many songs and stories that I've been unable to cover. I'll save those for a follow-up episode at some point in the future. I mean, I haven't even played one version of I Can't Go On Living Without You, and there are five of them. There are also all of the foreign language covers and all the covers that came after in August 1970 to cover. I'd like to thank all of the YouTube uploaders once again, the people that share their discoveries with the Elton John community. The Hall of Fame has to have Richard Volin and Ronnie Friend at the very top table. I've thanked him once in this episode and I'll thank him again. The research here was supported by my incredibly patient correspondent John McEwen, who kept pointing me in the right directions. I'd also like to thank David Boddo, who has very kindly provided the last song that I'm going to feature, one that can't be found on YouTube. Remember, if you want to contact me, you can do so on eltonpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear any comments or corrections or ideas for new episodes, any minuscule seeming items of Elton-related trivia, which you think I might like. There's also a dreaded Facebook group now. Just search on there for Elton Podcast and feel free to join up and post something. Anyway, about that final song. For this one, the release calendar goes back a few months to the 21st of March 1969, just as Empty Sky was being put together. One song that clearly didn't make the cut for Elton's debut was Taking the Sun From My Eyes. It was way too commercial. As I say, I don't have the recording of this song from Aisha, but thanks to David, I do have the other slightly later one by a singer called Lou Rich, who was at that time a recording artist for DJM. Lou Rich was a singer and a keyboardist. He played and sang with the band The Herd, who Bluesology are documented as having played alongside a couple of times at the end of 1966 at the Marquee. For those gigs, Lou Rich might not actually have been in the band. He left about the same time as Peter Frampton joined. However, it's nice to think about Elton and Lou sharing keyboardist tales with each other at some point or other during 66 or 67. Here then, produced by Stephen James and arranged by Zach Lawrence, is Lou Rich with his Taking the Sun From My Eyes. Use it! 
Christmas listen to me. 